0: and we are here for the episode three of our season five resilience series. Today we have Joseph Gonzalez back. You remember him from Powered Strength, don't you? He is a Mexican-American living in New York City and we are going to be learning a lot about the mind and how it affects our emotions and our mental health today. And we were chatting a little bit before we started this session, but you said a lot has changed since the last time we spoke. So what are some of the major changes?
1: I would say a lot of it is the hobbies and the stuff that I got into and how it all still relates back to what I do for a living. But to backtrack for the people that may not have done their homework and and watched the previous episode, I am a movement coach and I help people create a better relationship and understanding with their bodies so that they can live a pain-free life. A lot of the stuff has to do with, let's say, back tension or neck tension that doesn't have a structural cause. So nothing is torn, nothing is broken, and your orthopedist or your physical therapist says there's nothing physically wrong with you. But you know through your experience that that's simply not the case. Most of my free time before was spent reading about the nervous system, the brain, emotional regulation through psychoanalysis, that kind of thing. So very heavy, dense material. And in the last few months, my mentor has actually started recommending military memoirs, and that has to do with one of my hobbies. I, I joined a military simulation kind of group for video games. And within the context of that, I had to create stories or how to create missions. And I said, well, I don't really know a lot about this kind of stuff. So he said, here, you need to learn how the military functions. And then he paused for a moment and he said, this will actually make you a better coach because if you understand the way the military functions, you will understand how the brain functions. He kind of left it at that. And then he dropped 15 books on my lap and he said, enjoy. (laughs) That hasn't changed at all. It's literally just here do something with these read them or something better yourself a lot of the stuff that i thought that i knew was thrown out the door a lot of that information and knowledge is passed down because someone at some point made that mistake and so you are gleaning knowledge from someone that didn't make it back potentially there's this gravitas that comes along with that there are instances that have a measure Of that gravitas nowhere near the same but it's that thing where it's you need to learn this stuff because if you don't learn this stuff then there will be consequences but i think that's also what resonated the most with me because a lot of what i do is the consequences may not be life or death but for a lot of the people that come see me like they've already seen the best they've already spent I don't know how much money looking at different professionals that were in their network. And they said like, this is the best guy there is in the country for that. And so if I can't figure it out, then they're stuck. They have no one else to go to because I was the end of the line. Mike has always kind of instilled that within us reading through some of these memoirs. I was starting to understand where he got it from. And it was kind of another way for me to better understand the person who was able to teach me how to do what I do for a living. Because we always see them as at the tail end of their transformation.
0: That's true. It's interesting that you mentioned that you see people at the end of their journey, and that happens a lot with people who are specialists now. Like You mentioned you're a movement detective, but you're not. Just a trainer you can go see in a gym. most of your services are three digit four digit services, and then even before we started, you had that that whiteboard behind you and you had like a a skeleton of the hips and the backbone. Can you hold that up for a second because I was like, that's a one thing to move out of the way. <laughs> You know, you're really into it when you have that by your desk, what somebody calls.
1: <laughs> it, it helps to explain a lot of things because I've stared at this stuff for how many hours? I don't know how many hundreds of hours I've looked at this stuff. I've broken it down. I've stared at anatomy, 3D models of things. And so for me, I understand what this looks like cold. Like I can describe what motion happens as you're walking, as you're breathing, as you're in certain positions. I know it cold, but a lot of my clients don't. Many of my clients don't. And so it helps with the visual modeling because most of us can understand something that we can see. And I am usually looking at things that interact with things at different layers of the body. Like there's bone, there's nervous system, there's muscle, there's fascia, and really there's no muscle. Everything's fascia. That's a different conversation, but it's all of these different things and how they intertwine with a nervous system, how they intertwine with, uh, emotional systems. Because our primary purpose is to seek out and to explore, to learn. But if we are overtaken by a fear system or a rage system, that is going to essentially short circuit the seeking system. And then we need help. And then for those of us that are lucky enough to recognize that we need help, our attachment system turns on. And so we look for people to come help us. But if the person that we look to to help us can't help us, then that screws up the whole symphony of these things. And then we get into inauthentic versions of some of the other systems. Can you actually see yourself learning something new when you're scared? It literally interrupts your ability to learn. It prevents you from being able to learn. And we've seen that happen time and time again with people is that they get scared, they get flustered, they feel threatened or they say they feel attacked and then the fear kicks in and then these are the people that get over-defensive about something. They can't listen to a novel idea that might challenge their pre-existing notions. Something we probably said to someone when we're having an argument, they get over-defensive. It's like, what's so hard for you to understand? Well, the understanding part is offline right now. (laughs) They physically
0: cannot. Yeah, that's a good point. You have to Keep that in mind, especially after. Now we're in year three of the pandemic. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people that they they have that part of them compromised. They're not operating at full capacity.
1: They can't. People will say like, "Oh, it's the parents' fault." Is it, well, th- yeah, it is. It absolutely is. It's very nuanced how the parents can fail the ch- the child. If you run to your mom scared about something. And then she gives you words of encouragement, but they're words that are hollow. Like, don't worry, it's nothing. You're perfectly fine. You're safe in this house, sweetie. But there's no emotional connection between the mother and the child in that instance. Well, guess what? The child isn't comforted. Guess whose fault is that? Mom's. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's mom's fault. She dropped the ball. Why? Because she was never taught how to do it. Why? Because probably someone dropped the ball with her.
0: Yeah, these cycles of dysfunction are very hard to break.
1: And they are entrenched, particularly in some of the communities. It's entrenched in many cultures where we look down on someone seeking out mental health professionals. When I was growing up, and I may have touched this on the last interview, as a Latino, as a man in the Latino context, I was taught to suck it up. You don't need to display your emotions. And so I was emotionally stunted for decades until I almost lost my friend group. And they challenged me, they said, I'm going to paraphrase this, but you're you're messing up. And and you need to go unmess mess yourself up. And it was like, left at that, like, there was no or else it was just kind of like, dot, 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 in real life conversation. And I was like, Oh, oh, this is this is for real. And I had grown very close to this group of people. And I said, I need to, I need to fix this. Fortunately, at that time, we had access to someone who could help me with that situation. I called her up and I said, Hey, I I, I need your help. But it wasn't something that was one of my first initial ideas. Why? And this is where we get into learning. Because I wasn't exposed to that concept when I was younger. And because I wasn't exposed to that concept when I was younger, when I was presented with a problem where that would have been the solution my nervous system could not recognize the landscape and the markers for what they were to offer up that solution.
0: Yeah, it's true. Unfortunately, with with people of color, mental health assistance is usually the last resort instead of being, you know what, I'm not feeling well. Let me go get checked out. You wait until everybody else tells you, you know what, something's wrong. (laughs) And then you go get help.
1: And then if you're lucky, you trust the person who tells you that something's wrong with you. If they feel like they're getting ganged up on, they're not going to feel safe. They're not going to listen to anything you have to say. They're going to double down or run away or avoid it because you're making them confront something that they're not ready to confront themselves. And so whatever path you put them on in an effort to get them to get better will ultimately backfire long term.
2: Because it's not something that they came up with on their own.
0: Yeah. So what is the best way to to help someone? If you see a friend that is dealing with something, how can you help them without pushing them over the edge?
1: That's hard because the only way that you can really help them is if you've cleared up your own stuff first. And that's one of the things like, but I want to help my friend. I'm like, well, where are you at? Like, I was talking to someone on lunch club earlier today. But we came on to the topic of my whiteboard. And we were discussing emotional states and all this stuff. And we were talking about therapy and what therapy works. And she didn't understand what was going on. She didn't get what I was trying to say. And I noticed that she was getting flustered. And I stopped talking to her like the like we do when we first meet someone in a networking session, and I slowed down a lot, kind of like this. And I started asking her where she thought things would lead and where she was getting confused, and I let her talk. And then I tried to restate back to her what she was saying. And then eventually, after a little bit of time, I said, like, how is the tone of our conversation different now than it was at the beginning? Can you notice a shift? And it took her a second, and she said she'd noticed there was a change, but she couldn't recognize what it was. And so I spelled it out to her, and I I pointed out what the differences were, and I said, all of my energy and focus is on you. Like,
2: it was on her before, but now it's like I dialed it up.
1: And... Then she started to calm down. And it was one of those things where it was that interplay between the two of us where we were finally able to get some measure of a connection.
2: That's a skill. And a lot of people don't have that skill.
0: Yeah. That's one thing you said last time that I've, I've really kept it in my mind and I've been working on it is calibrate your words for the audience. It's very important.
1: It's incredibly important. And it's not just the words because you can actually screw up the words. You have to match the emotional state of someone. So you get someone that's panicky, right? Well, guess what? If you're matching their emotional state, you start to get a little panicky because they're panicky, you enter that room with them. They know that you feel it too. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for someone to recognize where they're at. And a lot of us can't do that. People like to talk like, oh, I'm an empath, I'm an empath, and I'm an empath. And then when it comes to show and prove, they just can't shut up. What do you do with the empathy? You could tell like I'm I'm a little charged about this because this is something that hits home. You get people that actually end up causing more damage under the guise of empathy. As an extreme case someone passes away and you're trying to find the right words and you're trying to make them feel better and stuff like that you're screwing up already it's way better to walk into someone and say listen i i know you're hurting i i have no idea what to say to you right now i just know that you're not okay i want to comfort you and i don't know how that's honesty that's just straight honesty and That, because I actually said that to somebody a few years ago, and I said it to Mike. Not somebody didn't die, but it was some other stuff that happened. Imagine hearing that when you're in pain. That's honesty. Because when you're in pain, you don't want to hear something where somebody is like, they give you a canned response. That makes it worse. You're almost like, oh, get away. So you're both being vulnerable in that situation and then through a dialogue because if you don't know well the only person that can help you figure that out sometimes is that person the person that maybe you want to help it's a very nuanced thing that people are not aware of that's part of the problem of trying to get help for people is that we want to help the other person but it's usually we are the ones that need to figure our stuff out first
0: There's a proverb. I think actually Jesus said it. He said, before you remove the straw in your friend's eye, you need to get rid of the rafter, the big giant piece of wood in your eye first. It does make a difference. Like you said, when people have those canned responses, they think they're trying to help. I know when we lost our baby about three years ago, there were three categories of, no, four, four categories of people, people who would Like, they just shut down and did nothing and acted like we didn't exist for a while. There were people who told us to just kind of snap out of it. The, The baby wasn't born yet, so it doesn't really count, and that was very hurtful. Um, and then there were people who, I guess they thought they were trying to help, they were just a little bit too much, they would Today, yeah, I know someone that that happened to before, and now they're okay. They would try and give like examples of stuff, but you, like you said, that last group of people, which it was very rare to find one of those, where they said, "I don't know how to help. I d- can't imagine what you're feeling right now, but I will just, if you need to cry, I'll sit with here you. If you need to cry, but just tell me how I can help you because I don't know what to do." That was that gave me permission to just let it all out because when you're with those. Three other groups of people, you can't. You just have to hold it in. You have to try not to yell at them. Sometimes <laughs> I did a few times, but some of them were were older people, and I was like, I'm not gonna go there. For some people, it's so ridiculous. The best response is no response. But it just when you're going through something, you get to really see what people are, are actually like, and maybe you also see that. Parts of your culture or the culture that they grew up in have seasoned them to be a certain way. And you have to be like, no, no, that's I understand that you were taught to do that, but that's not how this actually should work.
1: I've been on the receiving end of the first three scenarios that you described to me. And most of my life has been that. So when I found the two people besides my therapist that could do that fourth option that changed my entire life. These last two or three months is the first time in my life that I have not felt alone because of that fourth type of person that you're describing.
0: Yeah, it's hard to find those. We can forget what being a friend actually is. In my husband's language, they have two words for a friend, one that is a, an acquaintance and one that is that fourth type of person, what, like a confidant person that you can really count on. So I think in some cultures that don't have that distinction, we've forgotten what an actual friend is.
1: They have that similar distinction in, in Mandarin, like friends and then the people you go out to drink with. I think it's a beautiful thing to have that kind of distinction in English. We don't have that even in, in Spanish. I don't think we really have that distinction. My friend and I actually came up with a hard definition for what a friend is. It's this when you're in trouble and whatever that means, financial, emotional, physical, whatever, if you're in trouble, does this person one have the willingness to help you?
2: And two, and this is the big one, do they have the resources to help you? Benign example. You get
1: kicked out of your apartment. Can this person, if push came to shove, float you their sofa and then pay for extra food so that you won't starve? Let's say if you lost your job. Now, you're not going to go live off of the sky forever, but like just enough so that you can get on your feet and go and bounce back because you have the wherewithal to get that done. You just hit a really rough patch. Or you're going through an emotional crisis, like someone close to you died and you maybe have never processed death before. Can that person then talk to you through that in a way that actually gives you closure, in a way that actually gives you emotional resonance again? Because you can talk to a lot of people about stuff, but it's like even my clients, they say they've talked to their friends, their family, their business coach. But when they talk to me, they actually feel
2: better. It's one of those things that's
1: incredibly rare, but it's an essential part of the human experience.
0: That's true. And you don't need a lot. Like you said, you have two people. You only need one or two people that you can really talk to.
1: Because otherwise, you constantly feel like you're not being seen, like you're not being heard. What is language, if not a mechanism to allow for communication? It's not about the language. It's about knowing that someone else sees you. Because that's what it is. If, If I'm trying to communicate to you an idea, and then you repeat back to me the idea, and it's the same intention that I had when I was expressing it to you, I feel seen. But if you have like three or four different interpretations of what you think I'm talking about and none of them are what I want, then I feel like crap. And so you disengage from a relationship because the primary function of that interaction is to have mutual exchange. But that's what most of our interactions are like.
2: Not all, but most. So then you have a lot of people that aren't actually acting
1: like human beings in the strictest sense.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of people that they're on the surface, very nice people, but they're running their life on autopilot. It's just a very shallow existence, unfortunately.
1: Right. And so then again, we go back to the question, how do you help these people? Well, spot check. Are you one of these people? Nobody wants to answer that question. We all have blind spots. Your blind spot can potentially make someone feel worse when you talk to them. This isn't a a form of admonishment because I was like that several years ago. And I didn't know how I was hurting people because I couldn't register it. And then you realize then how your go-to responses or go-to phrases are not bolstering a conversation forward. You're instead taking an exit off the highway. Because you say something that doesn't match the flow of the conversation.
0: Yeah, I think one of the blind spots that a lot of people have, especially people who are maybe first or second generation college graduates, is maybe they unconsciously talk down the people that are not a college graduate Or people that are, then they completely change their persona and you're like, what? I don't even know what that word means. Why are you talking like that?
1: (laughs) That's actually a really good point that you just brought up. I caught myself doing it a few weeks ago. I was talking to someone, I forget the context of it. The feeling that I got was that I was being a little snippy with them because I knew that they weren't able to match me emotionally. Like, I knew that they were kind of lagging behind on a few things. And I was upset with them because in the context of a friendship, they weren't able to provide me with what I needed emotionally. And then I was relating this to someone else and they were like, yeah, dude, you're you're punishing them for it. You're lashing out at them. And I was like, no. <laughs> and then he didn't miss a beat. He said, yes and i was like oh no. <laughs> and then i clearly saw it now had this been the me from a few years ago i would have just thinking well eh, you're stupid you know what you're talking about but i saw it immediately as soon as he verbalized it and then as soon as i admitted it i started remembering other interactions where i did the same exact thing with that person i felt safe i felt safe enough to tell him this stuff to expose what i thought was a bad characteristic of mine In a lot of our relationships, when you talk to someone else, why do we lie about ourselves? Or why do we misrepresent certain facts? The root cause of it, for most cases, is we don't want to look bad in front of the other person. So now, in that framework of these two people, the other person's perception of you is more important than the integrity of the relationship. How do you know when you have a good relationship with somebody? the integrity of the relationship is more important than the other person's perception of you.
2: Because you're going to tell them you're in
1: and they may audit you on that and say, hey dude, you're absolutely right. Or they may tell you that's BS. Let me tell you why. Either way, that's feedback. And so with these two people that I have in mind, The integrity of the relationship is far more important than fear of how they perceive me.
0: Yeah, I guess in English you would call that having a a heart-to-heart conversation. Most of our conversations are just mind-to-mind.
1: The rest of them are maneuvering the conversation. They're not engaging. They're sidestepping.
0: Yeah, so is it time to re-examine what we've known about hierarchies is is college even still relevant at this point in time
1: i think it depends on what you want to do i think that everything is contextual and it's not just contextual in terms of what you want to do but it's contextual on like there are certain jobs that you can get away with not going to college for but but you have to be lucky enough to find someone that's able to teach you the viable option that exists outside of the presupposed framework Like you got to find somebody that's good enough at what they do that doesn't have the degree so that you can then follow in their footsteps and then learn from their mistakes early on. Like I had a girl talk to me about, she wanted to help people. Like she wanted to solve the hardest problems physically with people. I was like, all right, cool. Started up a lesson plan. I had a whiteboard just like this. We were good. And she tells me, so I think I should go to PT school.
2: And then I put down my marker, I sat down opposite her on the desk, and I I tried my hardest. I said, why PT school? And she says, I want
1: to put my hands on people so that I can help them better.
0: And when you say PT, you mean physical therapy, right? Physical
1: therapy, right. Now, this isn't a knock on physical therapy, but she has had direct exposure to me to Mike, to the rest of our little think tank. At that time, there was five of us. And it's like, what do you think we do? None of us are physical therapists, but we're able to solve a lot of these problems. If you didn't have access to any of us, your decision would make more sense. Please explain to me your thought process. And she was like a broken record. It's like, I just want to go to PT school. The end answer was she wanted to put her hands on people.
0: Mm, okay let me ask you this question how old was she
1: or is she five years my junior
0: okay so that would be 32 so
1: that at the time hold on five six five six years ago. so maybe like 28
0: okay yeah so i can't speak for everyone but in the 20s Maybe at the beginning of the 20s, you're like, yeah, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to find a master in the field and I'm going to learn it. But by the end of the 20s, you're still going through the growth process. Maybe you're not making as much as you would like to at this point. And you start to think, okay, let me go back to school now. But that's not the only option that you have. She had exposure to your master class, to your think tank of people. But she and many other people are scared into going back to the traditional route because they don't understand that the process to get where you are is a process. It takes a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She, she didn't get it. She ended up going back to PT school and then our little think tank never heard from her again.
2: So it was one of those things where it's like, you, you, have to unpack
1: why you think you want something. Because usually, if you unpack it enough, you can start to see the flaws in your logic. Every time that I talked to her about it, I think I talked to her like once or twice about it after that initial conversation It always came down to I want to be able to put my hands on someone. Her finishing statement was to help them get better. But I'm like, I don't put my hands on anyone. You send people to me when you can't fix them. Right. I put quotation marks. I don't know who's watching and who's hearing this. And it's not a knock on this person, but it's interesting when having a communication with someone and then you're trying to understand, well, what's the reason that you say X? You know, see somebody gets animated, you know, they get angry. What's your issue? Because rarely is it the reason that they vocalize.
0: But yeah, I realized I I went over the time that I did promise you, but the last thing I I would like to ask you is with the situation going on, New York City was already a very expensive city. So how is inflation affecting you as a business owner, your family? I know you have family in another country. Where does the line stop and the amount of support you give to family abroad? It's, it's very complex.
1: I... Don't give money back to family in Mexico for the simple reason that there's no relationship there.
2: Family is, it's a very good, that's a, that's a very uh, nuanced subject. Blood shouldn't
1: be the main driving factor for loyalty. Loyalty is another concept that we didn't talk about. Because you have a relationship with the people that engage with you, people that don't engage with you. There's no real relationship there. If I had a relationship with them, I think that that would change the conversation. But I've met a few people once the people that I did have a relationship, unfortunately, they've all passed away. My tío Julian being one of them. Lovely, he was the first person I ever had a beer with. If he had ever, if I found out that he was in trouble or he needed something, I would have figured something out. That's a different thing. Doing it because of blood relations, a lot of family just in general is very toxic. Especially when you have that divide and people have this perception that you make a lot of money just because you live a certain place and you're like, my cost of living is significantly higher than yours. Yes, I may make within this ballpark, but a significant amount of that is going to rent. Like I pay more for like a square foot (laughs) in, in New York city than you guys do the acres that you have on the farm. It's a very different thing. My dad has told me that like when, if he passes away and his sister is still alive or what have you, he
2: says, I want you to take care of her.
1: And I'm like, okay, sure. But then that's an accepted responsibility that I take with that condition or when that happens. There's history there. There's meaningful. I know they still talk. But for the people that are just like, hey, aren't you my cousin's third removed twice in laws? I was like, I don't know you. It's like that scene from Carlito's Way, Benny from the Bronx or something like that. And he's like, so I don't know you. So. I don't owe you. It's that kind of thing, right? The people that are my family now are my two best friends. My Parents are still alive. I still love them, but they cannot provide the emotional support that I need. That emotional support can only come from these two other individuals. They meet well, they're affectionate. Or they try to be, that wasn't a knock on them. I want it to be very perfectly understood. I'm not insulting them. I love them to death, but they lack certain social skills they're in their 80s like there's only so much that they can learn they've gotten better over the last couple of years they've gotten better interacting with me but they still lack certain social skills so my family is the two people that I confide in these are still my parents and I will still love them and I will still support them and I will still help them in any way that I can but they are unable to do that for me, emotionally.
0: Yeah, and I think that goes back to that distinction we made before between acquaintances and friends, like you said. Family and relatives are not the same thing. So people say, you can't choose your family. Yes, you can. You can't choose who gave birth to you, but you could choose who's in your inner circle. Yes, you can.
1: I mean, I've cut off connection with my sister. I don't speak to her. I don't allow her to speak to me. I'll speak to my nephew. When she visits, I'm like, I hate to put you in this position, but you're going to run interference. So you let us know when she comes in to visit, what flights you're taking, and I'll relay that to to my folks. I've experienced that enough for several lifetimes.
0: Yeah, I think, I don't know if you're in the same boat, but I think, The pandemic gave us a lot of time for introspection to be like, you know what? There's a lot of stuff that I was putting up with that I don't really have to. I'm not going back to that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think that happened to me very early on, like the first six months that we were all locked down, people reaching out to me to talk to me. And then like, these are people that I hadn't talked to in months before that. I remember I got pissed at one of them and I said, dude, why are you calling me? And I didn't even, like, I was mortified as those words were flying out of my mouth, because I think you got a beat on how I interact with people, right? You have a a general idea of how I talk to people. That's not something that I would say to someone, typically. And the words were out of my mouth, and I'm like, well, they're out there now. Let's see where this goes. he, He didn't have an answer. You definitely get an idea of what you've been tolerating for a long time. If you're given enough time and resources to pay attention. Now, just giving yourself solitude for a lot of people is not going to give you that. But if you've done enough of the work and then you have a little time to think a little bit and you're like, I don't mind not having this in my life anymore. I can dig it. Whereas for something else, it's like, no, it's like, I need this. Like I missed hanging out with my best friend. I missed going to get Chinese food with him. I missed watching like Marvel movies with him. And so once we kind of figured out, all right, we're gonna do this, we get the vaccine, we can stay masked up. Like once we figured out a way to make it work, we made it work. The emotional resonance was that important to both of us. And then I didn't need to see him every week. I saw him like once every other month. And that was enough. Like that was enough to recharge my batteries.
0: Yeah, and a lot of people are realizing that and also realizing that friendship is not like it is on TV or in the movies. You're, you're probably not going to have a for-life friend. You're not going to see each other every week or call each other every day, and you don't need to.
1: Most of the t- friendships that are depicted in media are dysfunctional. Yeah, some of these shows are enjoyable, barely. But they depict some really messed up archetypes of how people should behave. Ted in How I Met Your Mother. Incredibly dysfunctional, incredibly entitled, just bad human being all around. But people like the character. This dude thinks he's entitled to women's affection. The entire show. He does stuff that like that's close to stalker material. Because he thinks that he deserves their attention, he deserves their affection and intimacy. And he almost browbeats them into, into entering a relationship with them. You have a lot of characters that are like that, that are enjoyable to watch maybe, but then you peel back the layers and you're like, that's not okay. Like you wouldn't tolerate that kind of person in your life.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't now, but I think sometimes it messes you up where you meet someone like that and you kind of tolerate it for longer than you should because you haven't processed. That's mm, kind of annoying, but it's not just annoying. It's, it's toxic. It will mess you up if you're around it for too long. So sometimes we learn the hard way because we've seen that in the media and portrayed as okay.
1: We have begun to normalize abnormal behavior because it's acceptable in media and therefore we think that that's the way it should be. You have to be exposed to someone that's Different. And you have to be exposed for long enough that you can pick up on the difference. And only then can you start exploring. Because if you've never been exposed to someone that acts so differently from that and acts closer to what a real human being should act like, if you've never been exposed to that kind of experience, you're never going to know to seek it out. (laughs) You know, sometimes you say, like, oh, well, what messes this person up? Who cares? The point is that they're messed up and that you need to talk to them and they need someone to talk to and they need therapy or they need an equivalent thing
0: yeah and also to remember people if someone is messed up then it's not necessarily your job to fix them correct sometimes you have to walk away to protect your own mental health from that person
2: most people should walk away most people should walk
1: because you're not trained for that kind of stuff.
0: Joseph, you are amazing at breaking down all of this very cerebral information into understandable bite-sized pieces. Where can people get in touch with you to either hear more of your insights or to get help to fix their body and mind?
1: Thank you. Most people can find me on my website. It's Mejor Strength. My Instagram is the same. And on my website, you can find a link to my YouTube channel as well.
0: All right, that sounds good. Everyone, this is Joseph Gonzalez from The Horse Strength. And this is the end of episode three for season five. We'll see you next time.